0: This is Writer's Latitude, a podcast about writers, their work, and the things they care about. I'm your host, Joe Samuel Starnes. And thanks for joining us. We're still in the early stages of these podcasts, but uh, we now have a website. You can find us at writerslatitude.com. You go there, you can also follow me on Facebook or Twitter, and we'd love to hear your feedback and questions about the podcast. My guest today is Mickey Hess, a writer who I think is surely the only one of his kind. He's one of the preeminent writers about hip hop in America, and we'll talk about his most recent book, A Guest in the House of Hip Hop, How Rap Music Taught a Kid from Kentucky What a White Ally Should Be. It was published in fall of 2017 by publishing a New York press, but he's written much and published much more than that book. I mean, you'll have to look a long time to find a writer with a more varied output, He's written memoirs, novels, criticism, essays, and lots of academic work. He also co-authored a biography of the rapper Old Dirty Bastard with Buddha Monk of Wu-Tang Clan. Together, they wrote uh, The Dirty Version on stage, in the studio, and in the streets with Old Dirty Bastard. It was published in hardcover by Day Street Books and reissued by HarperCollins in 2014 in paperback. Mickey also wrote his Hip Hop Dead, The Past, Present, and Future of America's Most Wanted Music, which was published in 2007. He's published uh, nine books in total, and in addition to those books, he's, he edited Hip Hop in America, a regional guide, and Icons of Hip Hop, an encyclopedia of the music movement and culture. A native of Science Hill, Kentucky, he once was a hardworking adjunct writing instructor in Louisville who took on all sorts of extra jobs, like driving an ice cream truck to pay the bills because the adjunct work doesn't cut it. Uh, but he's now come a long way. He's a full professor at Ryder University in New Jersey, and he lives in Haddon Township, New Jersey. Uh, Mickey fits in well with my intentions for this podcast to talk to writers from both the, the South, where I got my start, and the North, where I live now. Uh, he's like myself that he started out in the South and, and now lives in the Northeast and still often writes about the South in his memoirs. In fact, Mickey lives only about three or four blocks from me. And until I met him, I figured I was the only Southern writer in Haddon Township. And now I know I'm not even the most prolific one. So, uh, Mickey, I, I was glad to find you four blocks away. And also, uh, I appreciate you coming on the show.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
0: So I want to jump into the most recent book, uh Guest in the House of Hip Hop, How Rap Music Taught a Kid from Kentucky What a White Ally Should Be. It recounts much of your childhood in rural Kentucky, uh, also your time in New Jersey, and, and then a lot about rap. It's, it's, I, f- I see it as part memoir, uh, but it's the title states. It's much more as it addresses race and music in America. I mean, I think it's part cultural criticism and essay as well. So I want to know how you describe this book and what was the motivation for writing it? So it's
1: part of the cultural nonfiction series that Ig Books does or Ig Publishing, I guess that's a good name for it, cultural nonfiction. It's got some memoir elements. Definitely my own story kind of wrapped around the subject and the way I approach the subject. But, um, you know, as a white scholar, white professor writing about hip-hop, you have to really take account of your own perspective and where you might develop some blinders because of where you're coming from, where you grew up, Um, you know, being a white guy from middle of Kentucky, rural Kentucky. Um, So, yeah, I would would say it's a good mix of cultural criticism and memoir. I think that's a fair way to describe it. Okay. Would you mind reading a portion of it from the introduction? Sure. It's from the introduction. You certainly don't want the only book you read about race to have been written by a white author like me. Nobody's exactly clamoring to read what a middle-aged white guy has to say about hip-hop, but at the same time I see white authors too comfortable leaving the work of discussing race and racism to authors of color, which both overburdens their writing and reinforces the concept of race as a topic white people aren't asked to think much about. My perspective certainly shouldn't replace that of a black writer, but it may provide a point of entry to show the power of black voices on the developing mind of a white kid, whose environment encourages them not to listen.
0: I think this book, and you talk about it there and, and throughout the book, that white people are often afraid to talk about race or address race, and, and you obviously think maybe they should.
1: Yeah, I think it, it's very comfortable as a white person to not have to address it. Um, and that's why I think we see people resort to those knee-jerk reactions whenever the topic is broached. You know, we see people say, whoa, 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 don't make this about race, you know, even in a situation that's very clearly, very obviously about race. Um, White people, you know, for the most part aren't asked to account for their racial position or to think of themselves in racial terms. Uh, and And a lot of times in America, white is just kind of seen as a default, you know, that race is something that people other than white people think about. And I think that, you know, the more white people are pushed and prompted to have to actually account for who they are and where they come from and how they relate to the world at large, it can only be a good thing. You know, to think about yourself and your privilege and your power a little bit more.
0: And I guess maybe rap music is one of the places where uh, the tensions in race are at the forefront of it. I mean, it's commonly discussed and addressed. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, it was... One of the moments that I became
1: most aware of uh, myself as a white person, as I talk about in this new book, was uh, the Vanilla Ice fiasco back in 1990, 1991. You know, people may not remember now, but Vanilla Ice was the biggest selling rapper of all time. He broke all the sales records. He beat MC Hammer's record. I don't think it was until Tupac a few years later that somebody shattered that Vanilla Ice sales record. So even though he got discredited, he'd made up a lot of uh, fake stories about having come from this rough-and-tumble, kind of inner-city gang-life background. And it was, for the most part, just absolutely not true at all. Might have had some slim basis in reality, but it was pretty much made up. So I remember the rapper Ice-T said of Vanilla Ice, he says he's from the street. What street, Sesame Street?
0: (laughs) Yeah, and I guess I mean you could look farther back in time before uh, hip hop that uh, Elvis certainly was not uh, was influenced by by black music and but sold a lot more than Muddy Waters or any of those old blues guys did.
1: Yeah, or uh, Big Mama Thornton who did Hound Dog before Elvis did it. I think she only got about five hundred dollars total you know it was paid basically for the studio session and you know who knows how many millions of dollars Elvis and his estate have earned off that song
0: lots of cadillacs and mansions oh, and yeah. uh, fried chicken definitely so so you talk, write a lot about your childhood growing up in Kentucky in the, in this book talk to me about growing up in Kentucky and and what that was like i mean, i think one like our, my you know i grew up in rural georgia but our our community was fairly diverse. I, mean, I think maybe 20, 25% African-American. Where well, I think Kentucky's a little different, right? Where I was was
1: pretty isolated racially. Yeah. I mean, I described it as growing up in racial isolation. You would basically get up in the morning, all day long, you would encounter white people. And that was it. Um, it's, it's changed somewhat over time. There's a, a more, uh, more Latino population. I still don't think it's reached anywhere near 25%. But yeah, it's, it creates kind of this false sense of the world when you wake up and all day long your teachers look just like you, your your church congregation, your preacher looks just like you, the police look just like you. You get kind of an odd sense of who you are in the world and uh, really changes your perspective on, on difference and race in general.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess the only African-Americans you would see in that case are uh, entertainers and athletes, right? That's about it, yeah. yeah. Well, talk to me about your home life and growing up. I mean, I think your, your father played country music and yeah. out a body shop, and you know, there's a lot about your, your family and just your life in the town. So talk, talk to me about your growing up there.
1: Yeah, my dad played uh, Chet Atkins-style guitar, the finger-picking style. Uh, my Uncle Mark was in a gospel quartet called the Cumberland Mountain Boys. Um, so, you know, music was always around, but it wasn't really until I heard Run DMC on the radio I started to pay attention and say, hey, this is something that's not like what I see around here. And and as hip hop got popular, I started to hear a lot of snide comments about how it wasn't really music, how they didn't really play instruments. And, you know, later in life, I came to see how uh, there was a lot of racial coding written into those statements. It wasn't just about musicianship or artistry. There was a lot of like snide derision toward uh, the idea that these black men were superstars. That maybe people thought they hadn't earned their place, you know, that they're somehow on MTV unfairly. Right.
0: Well, and I think, you know, in what year were you born? I was born in 75. 75. Okay, so late 70s and the 80s, uh, you're growing up, growing up there. I, I'm, yeah. I guess, uh, eight years older. But growing up in Georgia, I mean, you see a lot of casual racism, you know, sure. among white folks about talking about this or that. And I, th- I think you probably heard a lot about that, about rap and other things. Oh, uh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. So, um... I Actually, why don't you jump in? I want you to read from, the, uh, from your book, The Novelist and the Rapper. There's a section about where well, you were on a Boy Scout trip and found the uh, herd rap for the first time. Oh, sure. you, you referenced Run DMC, made me think of that. Definitely. I decided I would love rap forever during a Cub Scout hike to Wolf Creek
1: Dam in southeast Kentucky. We were eating Denny Moore beef stew out of pop-top cans while sitting on logs in our uniforms. One of the scouts had brought a tiny radio and tuned it into the local hard rock station. Aerosmith came on, but it wasn't Aerosmith. It was Aerosmith's guitar cut off and staggered and looped, with Run-DMC shouting rhymes over top of it. Larry, the assistant scoutmaster, nudged me with his elbow, a wide grin on his face. This is beef stew-eating music, ain't it? It sure was. (laughs) So that's that's the first time you heard... Heard rap. That was a crystallizing moment uh, okay. for sure. Yeah, I think I had probably heard Run DMC before, mm-hmm. but yeah, that was the moment it really
0: hit. Right. Out out in the woods in your Cub Scouts Boy woods. Scouts, I guess. About how old were you at that point?
1: Geez, that would have been. I would have been ten or eleven.
0: Okay, and I guess eleven. And that's about that. So that would have been you know mid eighties. Yeah, well, rap sort of came on. That's about the time it became. Blew up and became oh, big yeah. with Run DMC. Run DMC is the first big, big They were the first group. superstars. Right.
1: I mean, people had singles before, like, Sugar Hill Gang. Right. But as far as, like, a long, sustained career, Run DMC was the first.
0: Okay. I mean, I'm, I think, in it, if I recall it correctly, it sort of changed your choice of T-shirts. So tell me a little yes, bit about true. you. Uh, the, you had a Ronald Reagan T-shirt at one point. Tell me about that. Did you talk about yeah, that? Yeah, I bought
1: it, I think, from Orange truck stop. And it was just a a t-shirt with like a caricature of Ronald Reagan dressed up like an old West cowboy. Like I'm sure he played in several films, but he was basically threatening war with uh, Muammar Gaddafi in Libya. And I know it it said like, damn you, Gaddafi, you son of a bitch or something like that. Some kind of enough vulgarity that it raised eyebrows at
0: the elementary school. (laughs) But then like after getting in rap, what were some that did you have some t-shirts from uh, Run DMC or other groups? Yeah, I
1: started to pick up some things, and my mom was always, um, I think she had a little bit more cognizance than than some of the folks in town. She would ask me, like, are you sure that's meant for you to wear? You know, I remember I wanted to buy a Homie the Clown t-shirt from the uh, the sketch series In Living Color. And she was trying to tell me, like, well, you know, I don't think that's really made for a young white kid in the middle of Kentucky to wear, even though they sell it at JCPenney. I don't really think that's for you. And I mean that's that's kind of white privilege in a nutshell. I'd never considered that there would be anything out there in the world that wasn't meant for me. So that was one of the first moments I had to stop and think, like, well, is there is there something to that? Right.
0: Um, you also talk about, I mean, I think growing up, you know, fairly poor in Kentucky. Yeah. You talk about it, there's you talk about having uh using food stamps and sort sure. of a little bit of embarrassment with that. And you know, there's I, I wonder about. Do you find it difficult going back in time and writing these personal stories about family and and looking back on things that maybe not always easy to talk about?
1: Yeah, I mean, there were were moments kind of digging back into it that it wasn't the funnest thing in the world. And, you know, there were parts I chose to include and then parts that I wrote up and just felt like it didn't come out right or made people sound ill-intentioned. Um, or small-minded in a way I didn't intend to. So there were parts that I wrote up and then just decided it didn't really put the best light on things.
0: Yeah, I think I think some of the forms of writing, the really personal memoir where you reveal everything, is tough. You know, it's yeah. it's challenging to uh, to go back and and tell these things honestly and deal with them.
1: Sure, and you know, to what extent are you exploiting your family and? Uh, your town and other experiences you had growing up.
0: Yeah, there's a great um, uh, part of a book, uh, uh, Good Prose by Tracy Kidder and I Richard know that, Todd. Bro. And actually Richard Todd uh, died about a month or so ago. He's a no, great, good. great editor. and He wrote himself a great writer. Yeah, he was 78. And I'd gotten to know him a little bit. But there's a part where he, compa- I guess, he, when he was a child... In upstate New York, and this is probably in the 40s maybe, his or 50s, his father would take him into the, his, actually his grandfather would take him in the local Elks Club, and his grandfather would sit on the bar and have a beer and give him like a 7-Up or something. And there was an Elks head on the wall, and his grandfather told him when he was little, he says, well, this Elks head, what, it's a sad story. One day the Elk ran right into the wall and got stuck here. Uh, someday we'll go around and look at the rest of him sticking out the back. And uh, Dick Todd compared that you know, the when you write fiction, the only thing people see is the elk's head on the wall, but in nonfiction, there's that whole other story that's on the other side of the wall that she. you didn't explain. And these are you know, I know it's in creative nonfiction courses we talk about characters, but these are real human people where you know, you're fictional characters, you don't have to uh expose or talk about or worrying about them calling you up and cussing you out about how they sure. put you in their book so yeah I, I mean
1: you turn turn real people into characters in nonfiction by deciding what to include and what to leave out and you know you make them into a figure on the page that may not be as 360 as they are in real life right
0: right and you teach creative nonfiction fairly sure. often yeah yeah at, at basically
1: writer. twice a year
0: right um, one of your chapters in the book is titled, uh, why white kids should listen to hip hop. So I want you to, you know, tell me about why maybe not just white kids, but maybe why an old white guy like me should also listen to hip hop.
1: Yeah. So for me, it was really one of my first experiences of black culture. And, you know, I would never say that hip hop is part and parcel of black culture. It, you know, it certainly came from African-American culture, but, I think too often it gets mistaken as um, as synonymous <laughs> with black culture, as if that's a monolith. So um, for me, it was a launching point. You know, I would hear people mention Eldridge Cleaver in lyrics, and I would go and kind of seek out that book, or they'd mention Steve Biko, and I'd try to find out who was that, what was he all about, um, especially artists like KRS-One and Public Enemy. And a lot of people will tell you that that, political moment in hip hop has kind of passed that it happened late 80s early 90s nobody's really doing that today but that's only true i think in the top 40 you know and if you really look there's a lot of people still putting out messages and substance in hip hop that i think is really important for for white people in general to listen to
0: who are some, um, I know Kendrick Lamar won the Pulitzer Prize, yeah. and his, his lyrics are regarded as really excellent writing. Who, be, who other than him would you recommend people listen to? So I really like Bobby Sessions. Um, he's a
1: young guy out of Dallas. He was on the soundtrack for The Hate You Give. That's probably where some people may have heard him. Um, but he's definitely got a lot to say in his lyrics. Wise, intelligent out of Trenton, New Jersey, right up the road. Um, he was in a group called Poor Righteous Teachers in the 80s, but uh, he's still out there doing it, putting out a lot of albums all the time. He's always got something to say.
0: Okay, cool. We'll have to check them out. Okay. Um, you know, in addition to, you know, we talked about the memoir part about your life growing up in Kentucky. There's a lot about your current life in New Jersey. Sure. Um And actually, you also, before New Jersey, you lived in Philadelphia. So I want you to read, uh, also again from your book, The Novelist and the Rapper, uh, the very last part uh, of the book there. The very last part. Here we go. And that's from an essay that's uh, Nothing Happens is the title, right? That's the title, yeah.
1: After I moved to Philadelphia, I had a series of dreams about Louisville, Kentucky geography. I would drive around town kind of watching myself from above, planning the shortest routes from Bardstown Road bars to used bookstores across town. The dreams were very strategic. It felt like I was auditioning for a job as a taxi driver. One night I left work after a long day of writing and teaching in New Jersey and still couldn't figure out what street I was driving on. I thought I was still in Kentucky. It was so much a part of me that it was the default setting for my sleep-deprived mind. These Kentucky dreams are me clinging to the past. Even in an unconscious state, I'm trying to remain who I was. After a few months, I don't have them anymore.
0: Thanks for reading that. And there's a line in a guest in the House of Hip Hop where you say, I was Southern until I wasn't. Yeah. So do you consider yourself still? I mean, you've been in the Philly, New Jersey area for how long? Like 12, 13 years. Okay. Uh, I've been up north for 19 years now. Okay. So... do you still consider yourself a Southerner, and or are you a New Jerseyan now, and how does the contrast between these two places you've lived uh, you know, affect your writing?
1: Yeah, I would say I'm not a Southerner anymore, and, and I guess I always, even as a kid, I kind of fancied myself as not being a Southerner, even when I physically was. I always kind of saw myself uh, in opposition to a lot of what people really, like, waving Confederate flags and considered the Deep South mentality. Um, As far as the other part, yeah, I mean, one thing I've noticed writing about race and culture is that there's certainly just as much racism in the Northeast and New Jersey and Philadelphia, Trenton, kind of everywhere I've been up here, and that people really have this idea that racism was a, a southern phenomenon. It happened a long time ago. There's still some vestiges of it, but it never really happened up here, and history would just show you that that's absolutely not true. And you get a lot of um, you get a lot of more coded racism and conversations up here. I've had a lot of moments where um, you know end up alone at a bar with someone or a coworker, you know, after a meeting, and one-on-one people will really say some stuff that they're a little more careful not to say in larger groups. <laughs>
0: Been very prolific and clearly have worked very hard as a writer over the past twenty to twenty-five years. Um, I guess probably twenty-five years. If you're born in eighty-five, you're forty-four or close to it. Yeah, somewhere right in there. First thing I put out was nineteen ninety-five. Yeah. So, what age did you start writing? And tell me about your first uh, publishing efforts.
1: So I started writing when I was twelve. Um, I used to go to the public library all the time in the summer and just try to rack up the points reading as many books as possible. They had some auction at the end of the year or end of the summer. You could take all your points for reading books and try to get like a bike or a Walkman or whatever you could get your hands on. Uh, So my mom definitely took me to the library a lot, really encouraged reading, talked about all the books she loved. I remember reading Mark Twain. I went through kind of his whole shelf. I went through a bunch of history books that were geared for middle schoolers. So I spent a lot of time at the library and just sort of naturally, I guess, thought like, well, how, how does a person write a book? You know, how do these things come to be? So that's where it started. the The first thing I wrote that was book length. I was uh, a freshman, I guess, between my freshman and sophomore years of college. I finished a novel about forty five or fifty thousand words. Um tried very haphazardly to send it around to some agents. I remember going to the public library again with Writer's Market right there in the reference section and picking out kind of at random three or four names of agents, sending it out. Um, you know, I got some nice letters back. Just basically said, yeah, you know, this is really good. I hope you keep writing, but it's just not marketable. It's just not what we're looking for. What was the title of that book? It was called Nobody Likes a Ass."
0: Yeah, I, I like that title. So Thanks. that was, you
1: were 19? I was 19, oh, okay, yeah.
0: Wow, and you, you finished a novel. That's uh, You're far ahead of most. most I, writers.
1: I gave up trying to get it published pretty quickly and just published it myself, uh, which was fun. I got to make the cover. I put the whole thing together with a hot glue gun. Um, this was before I had the internet. I guess some people had it. So I had no idea there was a whole culture of people out there making zines. Um, you know, I would go to Kinko's which I guess Kinko's is part of FedEx now, but it used to be a copy store. And you could either find a friend who worked there that would let you sneak copies. <laughs> or I figured out you could run up like 500 copies on one key and then just sort of like leave it laying somewhere in the store and pick up another key and make like five and just pay for the five. Hmm.
0: True, true underground publishing in yeah. the, the old days. Well, I want you to read a passage uh, in Guest in the, from A uh, Guest in the House of Hip Hop that describes how listening to hip-hop motivated you to write. And you probably want to set up the uh, Trom, yours a reference to Trom Diggs. So maybe tell us who he is and then read that section for us.
1: Sure, the hip-hop artist Trom Diggs, a.k.a. David Shanks, um, is a friend of mine I met on a hip-hop panel at SUNY Rockland about 10 or 12 years ago when I first moved up to this area. Um, he grew up in Brooklyn, Um He's been rapping for years. I'm trying to get his music out there while I was trying to get my books out there. So we kind of hit it off on a few different levels. Still keep in touch. He's going to appear with me at the Collingswood Book Festival this October. So that's who Trom is. And here's the section. Hip-hop had taught Trom, same as me, that if you just kept rapping, you'd someday succeed. I didn't rap, but I remember fixating on the Q-tip line. The aim is to succeed and achieve at 21 and finding motivation to succeed at writing by that age. When I was 20 years old, I wrote a book and people smiled the way they'd smile at a child's drawing. Those who didn't dismiss it so easily seemed to fear for my future, the way you might fear for a grown man who still played make-believe. Despite the discouragement, I kept writing. I wrote and wrote so that I could one day get a job that included writing. I kept going to school until I earned enough grad school credits that I could teach writing part-time at colleges and used that income to put myself through a Ph.D. program. I commuted between community college campuses, teaching more classes as a part-timer than the full-time professors taught. I wrote a memoir, Big Wheel at the Cracker Factory, about my teaching jobs and the college's grand scheme of staffing courses with low-paid part-time instructors, even as tuition skyrocketed. I made money from that system even as I criticized it. I paid for grad school with the money I made teaching, knowing the whole time that landing a full-time tenure-track job was a crapshoot because all the jobs had been farmed out to adjuncts. During the week, I took classes until 10 at night and started teaching at 8 the next morning. On weekends, I drove hours to Chicago or Cleveland bookstores to read aloud from my books, hoping enough people bought one that I could cover the gas money home. Trom chose making art over
0: going to grad school. I was convinced I could do both. Yeah, I mean, I really admire the the work and dedication you've put in to to write. I mean, one thing I think Thanks. about writing in classes, I've talked to students, I always say you know, you got to write. You need to try to write every day because it's like practice. You know, it's like a musician sure. practices. And I'm always frustrated that these students don't really spend that much time writing. They want to come talk about writing and they want to read books about writing and talk yeah. about which MFA programs they might apply to, but they're not putting in the work. I mean, I think it's like Piano teachers with kids, they teach these kids and then, then the kid never practices piano and you know then that they, they just don't make anything of it. So but you sure. clearly from a young age started putting in the practice and stuck with it. So I'm curious, like what's motivated you to do this? Do you can you explain that?
1: Sure, but my first year of college I had a creative writing class taught by Sina Jeter Naslund who went on to write Ahab's wife and Four Spirits and some of these kind of big best-selling novels. But at the time I had her as a professor, she'd only published, I think, one short story collection and a novel. They were both on of a small literary press. But I had shown her some of my writing, and she'd seen some of it in that intro class to creative writing. And before that spring semester ended, she said, I want you to go home this summer, and I want you to write every day. I want you to really work yourself, and I want you to come back in the fall and show me what you've done. And that was the summer I came back with, you know, like a 45 50,000-word novel. And she, true to her word, you know, was willing to sit there and read the thing and uh, give me a couple tips on how to fix it up. So that was one of the keys right there. Somebody specifically sat me down and said, look, I want you to really work yourself. Come back and show me what you did.
0: That's great. And I I think, you know, you've continued, you know, all these years. I mean, your output, clearly, you've been writing often and, you know, every day or not every day, a lot and producing a lot of work. Where I know a lot of full-time faculty who go, oh, I can't write while I'm teaching. You know, I'm too yeah. busy. I can't, you know, and so I, they're, you know, they write at Christmas and in the summertime. But when they're teaching, they're just too busy to write. But I've always thought that was kind of, uh, you know, did you want to be a teacher of writing or did you want to be a writer? Sure. And there's a
1: reason that, that college professors teach Fewer classes than high school teachers. You know, you're expected to write. It's part of your job, and there's time built in for it. You know, less and less all the time. You know, there, all the time there are more obligations for professors' time, not just in the classroom, but different assessment committees and things. But you know, writing and producing work is still part of your job, and you do have time to do it. (laughs) It's just finding that time. And that's even for students too. It's important that they know not to just write but they've got to spend a lot of time only writing, not, you know, kind of checking Facebook or Twitter or answering texts in the background while they say they're writing, but you got to have some time. It's turned off. Same with me. You know, if I have my email on and students are hitting me up on canvas, I can't really write. So I've got to find time that I'm only writing.
0: And canvas is the, the tool they use to online classes for the talk online to courses okay. yeah, yeah. to message you. Okay. So, it, you know, I recently read Big Wheel at the Cracker Factory, your earlier memoir. And, you know, in some ways knowing that now you're, you know, a full professor, uh, you've kind of, you've overcome the system. I mean, you taught yeah. hundreds of adjunct courses and then worked just low a low-level instructor. Um, but, I mean, I think that book, you know, it's, it's a lot of, tell me about some, there's a lot of funny stuff in that book. Tell me about some of the, you know, you drove an ice cream truck for a while and had a job at a uh, like a kid's amusement center that you would show up whenever you felt like it?
1: Yeah, the premise, I guess, was, you know, I embarked on this career where they were really trying to deprofessionalize the professors and really farm out most of the teaching to adjuncts, which means you're a part-time instructor, you're paid per class. There's no guarantee from one semester to the next that you're going to have a class to teach or have a job. Um, Very typically, you're not going to have any job security, any health benefits, um, basically any kind of stability at all. And I saw people who were, you know, teaching a few English classes, whatever they could pick up at three campuses
0: and working part-time at a Subway sandwich shop. Yeah, I've always sort of thought it is, it's is—it's kind of the coal mine of academia in a way. In a way it is, yeah. And, you know, I,
1: I think the current figures are something like 65 or 70% of college courses taught nationwide are taught by adjuncts. And that's occurred at the same time that tuition has gone up and up and up.
0: And you took part, the money wasn't enough, so you took part time jobs. Uh, tell me about the ice cream truck experience.
1: Yeah, I mean, I started out out of necessity. You know, I was a waiter at night and a uh, professor in the daytime. But then I, I thought, like, well, what would be a funny job? <laughs> so I, I applied for this ice cream truck job. For one thing, I did need the money, it seemed like it might be a good summer experience i discovered really quickly i wasn't cut out for it like uh on the second day i locked my keys in the ice cream van before i had like all the money counted out and all the closing so i think that was when i actually just took off i don't even think i actually collected my check from that job mm. so just you made, locked
0: the keys in and ran you made it for two days i and think it was, was two days yeah. Yeah. yeah is that on your cv
1: no i don't put that on there
0: okay also one thing I thought you had a pet iguana that had its own room,
1: oh yeah, tell
0: me about the iguana and why. and this is like when you're not making a lot of money, so you to turn over the an entire room to the iguana was didn't leave you a lot of space, I guess that's a pretty expensive pet. <laughs> yeah, she lived for
1: nineteen years. She just passed away a couple years ago, but um she was a third grade pet, and they had discovered that that wasn't gonna work out too well for her or the kids. So my wife introduced this idea of uh, adopting this one-year-old iguana that was terrorized by third graders. So we, we took her in, and uh, very quickly she let us know she wasn't going to stay in her container. Um, she had like a big aquarium, but as she got a little bigger, she would just bust out of it and knock all the plastic off the top. So she ended up with her own room <laughs> and for, you know, the next 17 years or so. And didn't pay any rent, I'm assuming. Never paid rent. No, we used to feed her frozen rose petals and little cubes of tofu. And she would actually, you could unpeel a banana and she would climb up your body to get the banana.
0: You must have really loved that iguana. Yeah, it was a great iguana. Have you gotten another iguana since? No. Can't be replaced? Can't
1: be replaced. No, she was one of a kind. <laughs>
0: okay. Well, that's, uh, that's in a big wheel at Cracker Factory. Um, Guest in the House of Hip Hop came out what, maybe eight or nine years? They're about eight or nine years apart. Yeah, in the somewhere books. in there. So how do you think, I think you're being older and more experienced as a writer, you maybe changed your writing and would, how would you compare those two books or how do you think they're they're different? Yeah, I think Big Wheel was a lot lot more
1: fun and it was trying to be a lot more fun. you know. And as I got into A Guest in the House of Hip Hop, it started off, with kind of a more lighthearted tone, but when you enter talking about race, it's really tough to pull off much humor, and I think especially as a middle-aged white guy, that those jokes are going to fall flat and lead you the wrong direction, you know, the, the further I wrote, it became clear really quickly that this is a dead serious topic, and I think more often than not, the way people talk about race is they joke about it and then sort of back off and say, oh, you know, no, I was just joking. It's just a joke. Don't you have a sense of humor? So this book, I, I would describe it as, as somewhat humorless. I mean, it's got a few parts, maybe a chuckle here and there, but I was definitely going for laughs in the earlier book.
0: Okay. Yeah, it is. I was thinking a, a much more serious book. Definitely. And it's definitely a heavier topic and uh, maybe that's why the voice is uh, is, is different. Um, and you've also written novels in addition to the, uh, so you've got the two memoirs Guest in the house of hip hop and uh, big wheel to cracker factory. How many novels do you have? Just one nostalgia echo. Okay. Nostalgia echo. And that's the most recent piece of fiction that you published. That's, uh, 2011. Yeah. 2011. Okay. Um, I like the title. I mean, it's a great, a great title. And there's, you know, Barry Hanna was on uh, the Terry gross show, fresh air and they asked him, you know, like, what's the difference between the North and the South? And he said, well, uh, and Barry Hanna is a great Southern writer from Mississippi. Uh, very funny. He he died about maybe eight or nine years ago, I believe it was. But he said, you know, his answer to the question, the difference between the North and South is that men in the South are nostalgic by the age of 12. Wow! By the time they get to junior high, they long for the good old days. That's a good line. Yeah. So, and I think that's absolutely true. Uh, definitely for maybe a older Southern men or men of my age and above but what about um tell me about the title what's the title of this novel about
1: so the title actually is a a misremembered title of a salvador dali painting it's called the nostalgic echo and somehow i had it wrong in my mind and then decided i liked that better anyway and a lot of the book came to be about how we think we remember things accurately when we just don't that really memory is very fallible so I thought it seemed like a fitting title to have misremembered it. It kind of reminded me of that Catcher in the Rye moment where uh, Holden Caulfield figures out that it's not the poem that he's trying to remember, this idea of catching a body coming through the rye. He didn't remember it word for word, so he had it wrong.
0: Okay, that's that's good. Now, you said that's your only novel, but your earlier, you had some self-published novels, right? Oh, that's right? right, yeah. So there are three, three, two self-published novels and then this one? Yeah, that's okay. right. Okay. What do you enjoy most, writing fiction, nonfiction, the, the academic work? I would guess not, but maybe, I don't know. What's, no, what that's you, fun, what, too. Okay.
1: Yeah, the academic stuff is fun, too. I've always liked to go back and forth, and I remember, you know, finishing a project and then at the same time kind of getting a new project underway that was entirely different. It's a whole different genre, a whole different mode of writing. So for a while, I really did bounce back and forth between a creative project and like an academic or scholarly project. And I do think, uh, I guess, in the h- House of Hip-Hop, this newest one kind of brought the two strands together better than I'd pulled off before.
0: How do you decide on what form to, to tell the story you want to tell?
1: Yeah, you know, that's that's always the question, especially for, for a genre like nonfiction where there are so many different directions you could go. I mean, it could be, I could have taken this topic and done, you know, a, a full-on scholarly monograph about, You know, the historical involvement of white folks and uh, race and racism and the racial struggle. Um, But I I felt like since I had so much to identify about my own place within it, that some personal story and some memoir really did help frame the discussion. Um, Because, you know, sometimes you see white scholars out there writing about hip hop and they never really stop to acknowledge their position Or when they do, it's so like off the bat in the intro or preface or maybe even in the footnotes that it almost goes under the radar. And it seems like your identity and where you come from is going to always influence what you're writing about and how you're writing about it.
0: What's your process for writing? Um, I know you spend a lot of time in coffee shops. And usually I see people in coffee shops. I think they're just posing. But you're not. (laughs) Yeah, my friend Joe
1: Mino. He's a writer from Chicago. He always says that The people people who go to coffee shops to write actually just go to be seen. But I don't. You know, I always try to find a good, steady coffee shop to go to first thing in the morning, and I try to not meet anyone there. Like I don't want to see other regulars, and they say, "Hey, what are you working on over there?" I see you typing. You working on a book? I don't want that. So if that happens, I'm going to have to find a new spot.
0: You couldn't do that in a small town in Kentucky. Everybody would want to come over and chat you up, Yeah, right? there's a guy that writes on his laptop. Yeah, see, I can't do that. I have to write at home. I have to either go up in the attic or in an office with the door shut, because if I'm around people, I get distracted. And I, there's, I even got contacted by some company in Philadelphia who had an app, that the app was to help you find locations to go write. Really? And I'm like, thanks a lot, but I know where my <laughs> attic is. You know, I don't need that.
1: Yeah, you know, I used to write at home, but I think the iguana kind of put me off of that because she would be crawling all over the monitor and the keyboard. And, you know, now I've got two cats and a dog and they're all over the place. And I just like to be off somewhere that I only write and don't do anything else there.
0: Dedication on your doctoral dissertation at the University of Louisville reads as follows. To Old Dirty Bastard, I liked your motherfucking style. There you go. Tell me about, um, you, let, you, know, you later co-authored a biography of him with Buddha Monk, who was a member of the Wu-Tang Clan, and uh, entitled The Dirty Version. Tell me about your love for Old Dirty Bastard, and um, did you dedicate the dissertation to him before you even got into this project, and then how the project came to be?
1: Yeah, I I ended up dedicating that dissertation to him because he had passed away just a few months before I defended it. So um, the quote, I like your motherfucking style, is something he said in an intro to his first solo album. He was talking to the crowd. Like, everybody came out to see me tonight, I like your motherfucking style. So I want to throw in a little dedication to him. I hadn't actually thought about like writing a whole book about him. I'd always been really interested in him. He was definitely one of the most unique, original figures in, in all of hip-hop's history. And then actually through Trom Diggs years later, I met um, Buddha Monk. Trom had done some video footage for him. He'd filmed one of his music videos. They were involved with the same record label. This was Chamber Music Records. And uh, I knew that the Buddha Monk had been there for pretty much every major event in Dirty's life. He had been his hype man. He toured the world with Dirty as a solo artist. Toured he toured the world with Dirty as part of the Wu-Tang Clan. Buddha was pretty much Wu-Tang's standard hype man for years. You know, he was always on stage with them. And I knew that Buddha had done studio work and production for Dirty, guested on his songs, Dirty guested on Buddha's songs. So I asked Tram, you know, do you think Buddha would be interested in working on a book? And it just kind of came together from there.
0: So the the biography, I guess we'd call it a biography, right? Sure. It's written in it's told in Buddha Monk's voice. It's his yeah. first person telling the story. But you're, he's the rapper and you're the writer in the team. So how did that, yeah. how did that work and how did you construct the book?
1: So we started out sitting down at Hands in Lawrenceville, New Jersey, right down the street from Ryder. I brought Buddha in to speak to my class as a guest speaker. I teach a, a hip-hop and American culture class every fall. Always bring in a guest speaker, and it just happened to line up right that um, you know Buddha was available. We were talking about Wu-Tang Clan that week. So we brought him in, and then afterwards he and I sat down with Trom Diggs, And started to think, like, if we did write this book, if we did make this happen, what would it look like? What shape would it take? And um, based on those initial recordings, we went back and forth a lot on the phone because Buddha moved from Brooklyn up to Western Massachusetts. Which then, you know, what would have been a two-hour drive back and forth became like a five-hour drive back and forth. So um, a lot of long-distance stuff. I ended up going to Worcester and spending, I guess, the day after Christmas with him and his family up there as we wrapped it up. Worked on it for about two and a half years. Um, I would type up transcripts of interviews with them, kind of shape them up, you know, go back and look at other people's accounts of the same situations. And anytime there was a discrepancy, you say, oh, you know, I saw that, that Dirty's cousin had said it went down this way. In this interview. And then sometimes Buddha would say, oh, you know, that's right. I remember now how it went. And then sometimes Buddha would say, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> he knows that it didn't go down that way. I don't know right. why he said that, but, but that is not at all what happened. I want to tell you what happened. Um, so it was interesting. I, I got to interview Dirty's widow and his kids. I uh, still keep in touch a little bit with his oldest daughter, Taniqua. Um, I got to hear a lot of perspectives on Dirty's most infamous moment, which is when he took the limousine ride to pick up his food stamps. And he took his wife and his three little kids with him to do this. This was back in, I guess, 1996. He had money from the Wu-Tang Clan, but I guess the tax years hadn't caught up yet, so he was still receiving public assistance and food stamps. So he took MTV cameras along as he took a limousine ride to pick <laughs> up his food stamps.
0: Yeah, that was a, that was a famous moment. So you had to do a lot of verification of Buddha's stories and other stories and piece it all together. Sure. Yeah. And then ultimately, I guess Buddha reads it and approves it. And you spent this is like a, you said it took you two and a half years. I mean, it's two and a, a half years. Yeah, a lot of labor doing it this way, right?
1: Yeah, and a lot of times, like when I was at Buddha's house, he would call up a third party on the phone. You know, he would call up. For instance, we were writing about the the video that Dirty shot with Buster Rhymes. Um, sitting right there on Buddha's couch, he called up Spliffstar, who was Busted Rhyme's right hand man, his hype man for all his music, still tours with them. Got him right on the phone, and Spliffstar was like, Yeah, I remember exactly how that went down. <laughs> so we we would get verification right on the spot sometimes.
0: Okay, I guess that's why it took two and a half years. That's why right. it
1: took two and a half years. Got to get it accurate.
0: And this was after he um, Dirty. As we call old dirty bastard. Yeah. he died in two thousand and four. Two thousand four. So you're doing this like six or eight years later after he.
1: We timed you know. it to uh, to come out in two thousand and fourteen on the ten year anniversary of his passing. Okay.
0: Okay. Now his birth name was Russell Jones, and you said his mus- mother called him Rusty. That's right. Um, I also remember when he went for a while by the name Big Baby Jesus. Big Baby Jesus, Osiris. He had a lot of names. Dirt but, McGirt. But it got me thinking about in rap does anybody go by their? I mean, I think there's the rap names are a big part of the, the business or you, you, does anybody just go by, you know, joe starnes and rap I mean, they're not not maybe well you mentioned one guy bobby sessions that sounds like that might not bobby be sessions a made up, yeah that might not be a made-up name
1: kendrick lamar is his first name and middle name
0: okay well talk to me about names uh for for rappers and which are some of the most creative ones and and why you know in literature you have pen names occasionally sure. but uh in rap almost everybody does
1: yeah, you know, I just read a master's thesis that I had to get through interlibrary loan. Somebody did a master's thesis on rap names. And it took me forever to get this thing, but it was really interesting. And, and, you know, reading there and then some of the research I've done on my own, you really do get some whacked out nicknames. Like part of uh, Old Dirty Bastard's crew there's a guy named Shorty Shitstan. <laughs> and that's definitely one of the, the all-time classic rap names right there. There was a guy named Lil Half-Dead. That's a pretty good name, too. Um, sometimes it's done for comedic effects. Sometimes it's just a boast about, like, your skills and your position and come with this kind of swagger that you might not have if, you're, if you just came out of Sean Carter, for example, instead of Jay-Z.
0: And also, I mean, there are a lot of costumes and get-ups and special looks. What are definitely. some of your favorite of those in uh, hip-hop?
1: Oh, I mean, Snoop Dogg with the, the Afro blowout <laughs> is definitely a classic. Um, Curtis Blow with the long hair, um yeah, I mean Goody Mob just all together the way that Big Gip looked. That's going back to Georgia. That's Atlanta right there. Um, big Gip and Cujo Goody in those first two Goody Mob albums. You really can't top the way they came out.
0: Oh, uh, uh, Flavor Flav from yeah. Public Enemy had always had the big cl- uh, clock. That's right. Around his neck. That was, uh, so have you ever, uh, do you have a, a rap name or have you ever thought about coming up with a pen name for no. for your work? No. You know, or a costume.
1: <laughs> maybe when I was like 12 or 13, I remember my friend and I in middle school would kind of like think of rap groups and yeah. lyrics and yeah. things, but that's going way back.
0: Yeah. I mean, I wonder like as prolific as you've been, if maybe there's just not a whole nother line out there of books under another name that you don't want to admit.
1: I think that's a good idea, but, but it's not a reality yet.
0: Okay. Okay, Um, you know, there'd been other biographies of uh, Dirty before this one. Why was it important to you and uh, Buddha Monk to write another one? So there was one biography of him that had come out pretty quickly following
1: his death. And the journalist had started writing it and actually had met Dirty and interviewed him once, um, probably about six months before he passed. And, you know, she just couldn't get back in touch with him. She couldn't really sit down to finish the project. And it it seemed like it came out a little rushed. Um, And I know that his mother wasn't happy with it. Dirty's mother called for a boycott of the book. Um, His A&R called for a boycott of it. A lot of people weren't happy with how it came out. So I know that Buddha, he'd been interviewed for that book. And he was happy with his parts. But as far as the book overall, he said he really thought it could be done better. So
0: that's kind of where we started. Cool. Would you say that uh, the dirty version is your probably your most widely read book? I mean it's published by HarperCollins and it's uh, there's even videos of people in somewhere in Scandinavia thumbing through it on YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> so
1: I would say that's probably the most widely read one, yeah.
0: Yeah. Which would you say is the least read book of the of your books? Mm.
1: I would say the second novel I self-published, which was called El Cumpleaños de Paco, and I I just stapled together a thousand copies of them and gave them away for free. But I still, here and there, will get a letter or an email about it. So I I got them all over the world. I was traveling a lot at the time, somehow, so I I took them to Spain and Iceland. Um, And then it, it got reviewed in the Icelandic morning newspaper, which then I got like a couple requests. People wanted one in Switzerland and people wanted one in Sweden. So it, it made the rounds, but still there's a thousand copies only out there.
0: Okay. Limited edition. Limited edition. Now, tell me the title again and then what's the um, the translation mean of that?
1: It's El Cumpleaños de Paco, and it just means Paco's birthday. Paco's birthday, okay. Paco's birthday.
0: Yeah, we made it all
1: the We got covered in Iceland. Covered That's, in the Iceland uh, morning paper. The title of the review translated to Nothing Much.
0: <laughs> That's what they had to say about That's it? That's what they had to say yeah.
1: about it. My friend in Iceland. Sort of reluctantly translated it for me, and he said it was about forty percent positive, just to kind of warn me. It ended up being more like four percent positive. <laughs> they weren't big fans, but uh, I got the word
0: out. Well, did they spell your name right? They spell that, my that's name. That's the most right. important part, that's right? True. To spell your spell your name. So your first two books were the novels that were self published, and right. then I know your book, The Novelist and the Rapper which has a fantastic cover. Um, It's uh, William Faulkner's head sort of falling out of a tipped-over flower pot. That's right. Tell me about the inspiration for that cover. And if you're listening to this, it's worth Googling uh, The Novelist and The Rapper just to see this book cover. Uh, But tell me about where that image came from.
1: Yeah, so my friend Andy Sturdivant drew that. It's sort of a mashup of uh, Faulkner and De La Soul, who both appear in one of the stories in the collection. So it takes an element from a De La Soul album cover and then puts Faulkner's image right into it. So my friend Andy Sturdivant did the artwork, and then my friend Steve Sachs did all the uh, the coloring and visuals to make it look the way it looks on the cover.
0: Yeah, no, it's an it's a, and you self published that one, not that what, maybe seven or eight years ago. Why why did you go that route? You know, this was a cursed book. I had three
1: different publishing deals for this book. One was with a company that just suddenly went under. And uh, they tried to, to struggle along. They've been putting out really cool books to, to good acclaim. And then suddenly I think the money dried up and the guys who ran it had some personal things going on. Um, so it just kind of died. Um, so I got the rights back. Um, another company and I just didn't see eye to eye on how it should come out. So I already lost one deal. It didn't seem like a big deal to turn my back on another one. And then I went a long time before somebody else wanted to publish it. And that didn't work out either. So I said, you know what? I'm just going to do it myself. I used to do it. I had fun doing it. I frankly kind of miss self-publishing. So I, I got the book the right size. It's the exact size I want. It's like a seven-inch square. Um, I went back to that initial first publisher. Who, the main thing I liked about them is the way their books looked. So I went back and did the research and found out who printed their books. And just kind of went right around them to the printer and said, okay, here's what I want it to look like. My friends did the cover art and the design, and there it is.
0: Cool. It's a collection of 24 stories and essays. Definitely a a unique little book, so I'm glad you uh, persevered and got it out there. Thanks. I like that one. So those you did three self all your others have been with small presses except for the uh, the dirty version which is
1: dirty version and academic press for the uh, for icons of hip hop the regional guide and his hip hop Dead. right right. those okay
0: what's uh, what's your next writing project
1: don't have one yeah first time in my life first time since I was twelve or thirteen years old you're too young to retire I know yeah I, I really don't know what I'm gonna do next are you writing every day or fooling around with anything. Yeah, I'm playing around a little bit. I don't think, I think anything really looks like a book yet, but yeah, I mean, I still get in there and write. I'm definitely taking it easier than I have, though.
0: Yeah, well, it's uh, you you've worked hard for a long time, but I also wonder maybe you're just not bluffing me and maybe you don't want to jinx an idea that's underway. Is that possible?
1: There is something to that. Um, I don't think I'm sitting on seven novels that are ready to come out or anything, but yeah, there's, there's some ideas kind of percolating.
0: What's your biggest goal as a writer? I mean, what's the, the, you know, you've been at it for a long time, but you're still, still a young man. So what's like the long term Mickey Hess, uh, you want the Nobel Prize or what's the... I uh, want the Nobel
1: Prize. <laughs> yeah. I do. If you can make that happen.
0: Well, uh, it'd be great if you go go on to win it and then they'll look that's back right. on this. Uh, is this the first hour-long audio interview anyone's done with you? I've done a couple. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, Sorry. That's all right. Yeah, I let's hope we'd be first. <laughs> all but, right. you know, for a long time, my goal...
1: When I was self-publishing and going with small presses, I just thought, you know, I won't really feel legit. I won't feel like I've gotten to where I wanted until I get a book published by a big company. You know, one of those big five companies, or I guess maybe even less now that they've all merged and merged. And we have Penguin Random House is one company now. And, you know, HarperCollins is part of Fox Corp that owns Fox News and uh, Wall Street Journal and whatever the hell else they own. But, you know, once I got the HarperCollins deal, I felt really good about it. It was just like a point of pride for me for about a year. But once the book came out, it wasn't any more fun. It wasn't any more satisfying than the other books I'd done. I don't feel like I got a lot more attention necessarily. I mean, I guess more people probably saw the book. But, yeah, I mean, that was kind of the goal for so long. And then I got there and it's like, oh, well, this doesn't feel much different than when any press puts it out.
0: What did I want this for? (laughs) Exactly. And I I hope that's a good message to to young writers out there. Yeah, I I do think that, you know, you got to sort of write for yourself. I mean, one thing I really admire about your work is that you seem to have done whatever the hell you wanted to do. Sure. And you didn't ask, you know, who's going to think this of that or, you know— why you know i'm a white boy writing about rap you haven't worried about these things and you've just done the work and put the book the work out there so i think that's admirable because there's so many the world wants you to compromise on everything you know
1: That's true i mean i i guess as far as the white boy writing about rap though i did write a whole book wrestling with that question otherwise i would agree with you i I kind of i kind of did whatever i wanted to until i really had to take myself to task
0: well but you you question that i mean i like the way that that you uh that you approached it oh thanks and uh, and, uh, the the stuff you've done well i really appreciate you coming on the show sure it's been a lot of fun uh you mentioned earlier you will be at the collingswood book festival on saturday october 5th i believe you're at 3 p.m it's a free event so uh, mickey will be there with traum Diggs, also known as david shanks who's both a journalist and a rapper so that's a great uh great combination you can find mickey's website online at mickeyhess.net you can find the writer's latitude at writerslatitude.com if you want to send me a message my twitter and facebook uh, pages are there so you can link off and we'd love to hear from you if you've listened to the podcast or you have questions about others we'd like to hear it so thanks again mickey
1: thanks